0: The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, September 29th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. I think everyone in the room can probably think of their own examples of this, so I think it's common across everyone in here, but And despite all the the laughter, the joy, and all that you've experienced in the last two minutes together, if you think about the rest of your days, Monday, Tuesday, on through Saturday, maybe even Sunday morning on your way here, I think if you were to think about the reality of the world that we live in, it's fair to say, young and older alike, that we live in a world where everybody seems to be angry all the time. Sociologists have been trying to figure this out. They've even coined a term for it in our day and age. It's called an outrage culture. We have systematically created a way to express our own personal anger and outrage at things people say and do, while at the same time using the same system to express our anger to publicly shame those who disagree with us. And it's happening in everything. There are books, studies, articles, papers being written about this. Everyone has a different take on why this is happening, how it's come to be. The most consistent being that for, there are some of us here in the room who, for at least a portion of your life, you got the majority of your news about the world in paper. You would read it, you would process it, you would take it in. But the paper touches a different part of your brain than today when you pull your phone out and you have 24 hours a day, seven days a week at your fingertips right now in your hands, though it should be in airplane mode, in your hands, access to global injustice in a way that touches a different part of your brain. The interactive technology we've created today is designed specifically to touch the emotion sections of your brain. So now people are growing up and living in a world where they have 24, access, 24 hour a day, seven day a week access to information about injustice around the world and in their own lives, triggering different emotional impulses and then a systematic way to express ongoing anger and outrage about people differing with their views and their understandings of the world. And a culture has grown up around this. There's a fascinating article I was reading this week in the The writer said in America's digital culture, outrage is packaged to almost every niche in the citizenry. Meaning that that this outrage isn't just for academics. This outrage just isn't for wealthy. This outrage just isn't for poor. This outrage has its own little niche even in the church. He said people feel a duty to be outraged by the offenses being trotted out in front of them. Why? Because it feels good to express disgust. And of course it feels good when that expression comes with social affirmation. People favorite your disgust. Retweet your disgust. Begin to follow your thoughts of disgust. There's an ongoing incentive for you to continue to show more anger. See, outrage is just another term for anger. Anger. And an outraged culture is just another way of saying an angry culture. And culture is just the corporate expression of the human heart. You and I live in a day and an age and the world around us is very angry. We spent the last three weeks considering the reality that the culture, the corporate expression of the hearts of God's people that is cultivated here as a church, is far more significant in God's plan than you and I realize. In fact, the culture of the church, the corporate expression of the heart of the church, we've been looking for the last three weeks, is part of God's eternal plan to put on display to a watching world, a world caught up and steeped in anger and outrage, the corporate expression of the love of God's people together is meant to put on display to a watching world something of his love for them. It's always been part of God's eternal strategy. And so for three weeks, we've been looking at attributes of this particular culture amongst God's people, particular expressions of this love. And we've been looking in Romans chapter 12 at all the different things that Paul talks about. And this morning, I promise you, we're going to wrap this series up in Romans chapter 12, I promise. Next week, we're going to start First Samuel. So if you don't have a First Samuel journal, there's like two left. Go ahead and grab one on your way out. We're going to start it next week. But this week, we're going to wrap up this look at the culture of the church. And as I've considered it, the, the remaining attribute in Romans chapter 12, the one that we're going to consider today, it might prove to be the most eye-catching attribute of the culture of a church to a world steeped in outrage. And so if you've got your Bibles, Romans chapter 12, let's pick it up in verse 17. Paul's writing to the church and he says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Friends, right now in 2019, in in a culture of outrage and anger, I think it might just be a grace-driven response amongst God's people to being wronged that creates a lasting countercultural impact for the glory of God and the gospel. Because there's something that Paul knows about the human heart, and he doesn't have to explicitly say it here because he knows it to be true about himself. When someone wrongs you, when you are wronged, no one has to tell you to repay that wrong with wrong. No one has to instruct you to repay that evil with evil. You are born with the instinctive desire to pay back whatever wrong you feel has been perpetrated against you. If you don't believe me, spend some time with little kids. No one has to tell that cute thing in the high chair. When you take away that Cheerio to reach up and get a handful of your beard, or a handful of your hair. No one has to be told when they feel like they have been wronged by someone to repay that wrong with a wrong of their own. That's the natural instinct of the human heart. The human heart knows nothing of its own but retaliation. And when Paul says here in verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, that's the entire spectrum of relationship. That no one includes people who you live life with who might just not like you. There are people who just aren't going to like you. They're not trying to hurt you. They're not trying intentionally to cause you harm. They just don't like you. And as you move across the spectrum over here in the middle, there are people that you're going to have in your life who, who are actively working against you in some way. They might not intentionally be trying to cause you irreparable harm, but maybe at work they're saying things about you to coworkers or to bosses to work against your upward mobility and momentum. Maybe there are people in your life who are actively working against you in your social circle, saying things about you that aren't true so as to shape people's opinions of you. They're not trying to hurt you, but there's something going on where they're, they're actively working against you. But then all the way over here on this side of the spectrum, there are those who do seek to cause you harm. There are those that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12 who seek to persecute you, who seek to hurt you. And when Paul says in verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, he's talking about the entire spectrum of relationship right there. And he has to say this because he knows, because of his own heart, he knows the default reaction of the human heart is to always retaliate. There's a writer some of you might be familiar with. His name is Frederick Biekner. He was an Anglican pastor in, in the United States. He, he's really a writer of the heart, of the soul. He has a unique insight on the way the heart works and the way he writes. And he wrote a book called Wishful Thinking. And, and in that book, Bigner said this. He said, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. Now, just think about it, okay? He's going to paint a picture that I think everyone in here can relate to. You can close your eyes and just listen to it. Just paint the picture in your mind of what he says. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome toothsome morsel both the pain that you've been given and the pain you're going to give back. In many ways, anger is a feast fit for a king. Do you know what he's talking about? Three times here, at the end of Romans chapter 12, though, Paul says that you and I are to repay no one evil for evil. In verse 19, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. In verse 21, he says, do not be overcome by evil. And as he brings this to a close there in verse 21, considering this anger and this impulse to retaliation, Paul says something tremendously insightful about the human heart. See, when Paul says that you and I are not to be overcome by evil, he's painting a picture for those who would have read this originally in the language in which he wrote it because that word overcome was a military word. That word means to defeat something, to wrestle something to the ground. Paul says that when you and I give in to the instinctive impulse to retaliate, to return evil for evil, regardless of the person or the situation, when we give in to that, what we're actually demonstrating is that like that person, you and I have been overcome by evil. We've actually been defeated. Evil has actually wrestled us to the ground. That's what we're demonstrating. So Paul says you and I are not to be overcome by evil. And the ways that this happens in the human heart, even in the church, are are more numerous than we can even begin to get into. Tim Keller said that there are really two ways that you and I end up trying to repay evil for evil. One is to go out there and bring about the painful situation in someone's life, ourselves. The other is to sit and not do anything but root against them. To hope for and wish for a bad situation and condition. Whenever we see that person unhappy, our hearts go, yes. Keller said, You are still repaying evil for evil. You're still willing the evil. You're still wishing for it. You're either doing the retaliation or you're wishing you could retaliate. Either way, it's repaying evil for evil. Paul says it's in that retaliation that you and I are actually demonstrating that we have been overcome. So let me finish that Beekner quote. I cut it off for you. He said, To savor the last toothsome morsel of the pain that we've been given and the pain we're giving back. What an image. In many ways, he says that anger is a feast fit for a king. But he goes on to say this the chief drawback is that what you're wolfing down at the feast is actually yourself. The skeleton left at the end is really you all the anger, all the retaliation, all the outrage, what's actually happening is you are being overcome. So Paul says, friends, let's not be overcome by evil. Rather, Paul says, you and I in the culture of the church, the culture of our homes is meant to be one that seeks to overcome evil with good. Now that doesn't mean being passive about wrongdoing. It means not being vindictive it means not retaliating so what does it actually look like to begin to overcome evil with good well for the sake of time and the sake of context paul gives us a couple examples of what this looks like even in romans chapter 12 if you go back a few verses to verse 14 paul says that you and i are to bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse So one way we begin to overcome evil with good rather than being overcome ourselves by the same wrong, by the same evil is to begin to bless those who persecute us. So now Paul's thinking specifically over here about those who are actively trying to do us harm. But it really counts on all these relationships. And most commentators out there on, on the book of Romans all agree that when Paul talks about blessing those who persecute us, he has this very specific action in mind. Paul is actually rephrasing what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 when he told his disciples that we are to pray for those who persecute us. When Paul uses in his letters the words we translate "bless" right here, oftentimes it's used as the word pray. Paul has in mind that one way you and I begin to overcome evil with good is to begin to pray actively for those who are persecuting us. Because here's the thing, it is very difficult for you to actively nurture anger and outrage in your heart towards someone else that you're actively play, praying the blessing of God upon. It's very difficult for you to do that. We talked about realities like this this weekend in the family conference about how we interact with our spouses and how we interact with our kids and the tendency to yell and the tendency towards anger. Sometimes physically we talked about how you have to put yourself in a low position or in a comfortable position because it's very hard to yell from those positions. Paul's saying, when you and I are actively praying the blessing of God upon those who even are seeking to do us harm, it's very difficult for the human hearts to really want God's blessing for someone and at the same time nurse anger and outrage towards them. So the first way that Paul begins to to highlight and direct our hearts towards is, is blessing those, beginning to will their good through prayer. But in all three services, the minute we've got to this point, there have been at least two or three people who have crossed their arms because we read all the verses. And verse 20 sounds a lot more like what you're after. I want to heap burning coals on their head. That's what I want to do. Isn't that what Paul said we're doing? You don't know what they said about me. You don't know what they posted on Facebook about me. You don't know what they tweeted about me. You don't know what they told my coworkers. You don't know how they lied about what I did. You don't know how they've undermined everything I've been trying to do. You don't know. Before you strike up the fire and heat up some coals to dump on people's heads, you need to understand that throughout the Bible, Old Testament to New Testament, when you come across the image of coals, burning coals like this, it's a metaphor for two primary things. One, it's a metaphor for repentance. It's a metaphor used often Old and New Testament for the conviction of sin and repentance. The other is the judgment of God. Either can be true in what Paul is saying here. Paul's saying as you and I seek to overcome evil with good by actively blessing those who seek to harm us or hurt us who have wronged us, our response to them can be a means by which conviction of sin and repentance is born. Or their continued rejection and response towards us becomes the exposure by which the judgment of God comes in his day and in his time. Either way works. Verse 20 follows verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. See, if you and I retaliate, we try to return wrong for wrong, all we're doing is putting ourselves in the same position of being overcome by evil. But now by the grace of God on this side of the cross, trusting in the sovereignty and holiness of God to make right all that sin has gone wrong, and we can leave that kind of vengeance to his hand in his time and his judgment, you and I can begin to respond differently. Paul says to the contrary, verse 20, if our enemy is hungry, we can feed him. If he's thirsty, we can give him something to drink. For by doing so, in the hand of the providence of God, our action of grace towards them, the way we respond to being wronged, can be the means by which conviction or repentance comes, or the means by which they expose their rejection and rebellion against God. Paul's not saying that we, we don't oppose sin. We've already dealt with that in chapter 12 when he talked about the the passion to abhor that which is evil, that which seeks to hurt and to harm one another. Paul's also not saying that in these situations where people are seeking to harm us that we're to allow ourselves to be abused. Paul is painting very broad strokes here to get into how to respond to particularities of of different types of abuse would take more time than we have. Paul's painting big, broad strokes about the way the heart of God's people is meant to respond along the spectrum of being wronged, which is why verse 18 kind of encapsulates all that he's saying in these verses. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. See, a culture in a church or in a home that... Reflects the supernatural grace of God to a culture and a world steeped in anger and outrage is a culture that seeks to set the pace at making peace. How we deal with being wronged by one another here because no matter how smiley and happy and shiny all the faces are when you stop and look around at some point the sinful reality of our own hearts is going to rub against your life in reality. And the way that we respond to being wronged, even in here, towards one another, not to mention the ways that we respond to those who actively seek to argue, to disagree, to put down, to persecute that which we believe in. The way that we respond to being wronged, the way that we set the pace in making peace, has a supernatural impact on a world steeped in a culture of anger. I love the honesty of Paul. Paul says, if it's possible. And sometimes living at peace isn't going to happen. If it's possible. But then he says something we always want to do an in-run around. Like We always try to figure out the play to get around what he says next. He says, so long as it depends on you. Paul says, you have a, a part to own in this reality. In this relationship where you feel like someone has wronged you or you feel like something has happened, a relationship has deteriorated, it's been broken down, Paul says as long as it de- so, so long as it depends on you, however much here in this relationship is on you to deal with, you need to deal with. And guess what? Reciprocity might not exist even in your mind we play this really weird game especially within the church maybe in the rest of the time we'll just deal with relationships in the church more than even outside we play this really weird game where we can convince ourselves that 90% of what happened and what's wrong is someone else's fault and if 90% is someone else's fault 10% is just my response to it and I don't have to deal with that because 90% is doing what they did to me Friend, you're still sinning in this situation. It's as though we can convince ourselves that God's sitting up in heaven going, oh, oh, 90% was their fault. You did that because of what they did. Oh, I get it now. I'd have done the same thing if I was you. It's not the case. We know exactly how God responds to those who have wronged him he's shown us very clearly in the life, the death, and resurrection of his son. You and I who sit in here and, and confess to be so lavishly forgiven by the grace of God in spite of our wrong, in spite of our insult to his holiness and mercy towards us, how quickly we forget how deeply we've been forgiven. Paul says, as much as it depends on you, Living in the genuineness, as he's already talked about, of the gospel. Relating to one another here with no ulterior motive, no hypocrisy. Abhorring that which would sever the joy that we have together in the gospel. What this means is that we go towards each other and say, listen, friend, I need you to forgive me. This is what I've said about you and you probably don't even know. I've worked against you in this way with others i didn't value your soul when i i looked at you as something that i could use for my own gain and my own path i treated you as less than someone that god has saved by the death and resurrection of his son in saying this or, or in doing this whatever it is I, I didn't even recognize or honor where you are in the process of God changing you and making you more like His Son. Can you forgive me? And guess what? If any of that comes out of your mouth towards one another with the intention of hearing it from someone else, it's already misguided. This is without any aspect of reciprocity at all. As much as it depends on you in the situation, Paul is trying to make clear that in all of these situations, the culture of peace the gospel produces in the church has zero room for vengeance. Verse 19, Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. That word never is huge. You can circle it, highlight it, asterisk, do whatever you do in your Bible, circle that never. Because that never includes the churchy versions of vengeance that we never talk about. That never includes the physical acts of retaliation. Verbally saying something, doing something, physically doing something. But it also includes the opposite of peacemaking. It includes peace faking. That's what the church does. Church fakes peace. See, this never avenge yourself It includes all the revenge fantasies that you and I create in our mind and in our heart. All those stories and opportunities we play in our minds, the video of exactly what we would say, exactly what we would do. All those revenge fantasies, that's fake peace. We come in here, we sing the songs, we read the verses, we go and we pass the peace to other people, and then we find different aisles to leave so we don't have to see each other. It all looks good. It's all out here, right? It's peace. Those are happy people. It's not peace. It's fake peace. Because in our minds, in those revenge fantasies, it's just psychological voodoo. We've got a picture of that person or those people and we're poking needles in it all the time. Man, I wish this happens. Man, I wish this happens. Oh, that happened to me? Yes. Looks good on the outside. But on the inside, we're seeking that same vengeance and retaliation. Paul says, never. Never. Never avenge yourselves. Those revenge fantasies and that fake peace in the church, it will do nothing but rot your soul. You realize that's all a grudge is. It's nursing these beliefs, these harboring these desires towards other people. If you like churchy language, it's where the roots of bitterness come from. It's harboring these things in our heart. And Paul says there's to be zero room for it. Not just the physical expressions, but the internal delights. Paul says this culture that the gospel produces in the church, it's it's a culture of peace. It's made up of aggressive grace givers. See, retaliation, verbally, physically, whatever that looks like, That's like running down the road to hurt somebody, right? If you can get a picture in your head. It's like running down the road to hurt somebody. That's peace-breaking. Peace-faking is running the other direction on the road, pretending that nothing's wrong, right? And in doing that, all you're doing is nursing and harboring the sin that's existed right there. Peace-faking is a cowardice way of approaching things. Peace-making is now running back down that road towards that person to see forgiveness and restoration brought as much as it depends on you. You've got to seek to live peaceably with others. You have to stop playing those fantasies in your mind about how you'd hurt them, what you'd say to them, how you'd pay it back. You've got to put away the little voodoo doll in your heart and all the needles you stick in it. The forgiveness that we seek to extend to one another in these situations when we've been wronged, it's often a forgiveness that we have to, that we have to enact before we'll ever feel. And the culture of peace that Paul is talking about marking God's people in an age of outrage and anger that says something to a watching world about the magnitude of God's love is is a culture made up of aggressive grace givers. People who are willing to get over themselves to ask the question, how do I go about loving this person? How do I go about blessing this person as much as it depends on me? How do I go about down this road to live at peace with them? This kind of peacemaking, it requires something. It requires a changed heart. The only way that you and I will be able to overcome evil with good, rather than being overcome by evil, is to have a truly changed heart. Which is why every single week as we've been going through romans chapter 12 at some point along the morning we've got to go back to romans chapter 12 verse 1 because it's what sets up everything that paul says i love the way that the niv translates it the niv says in chapter 12 verse 1 i urge you brothers in view of god's mercy i love that because i love the word view do you know what a view is it's not a trick question a view is when you're hiking and you find that overlook, and you get out on it, away from everything around you, and all of a sudden the fog burns away or the clouds move, and you can see for miles. And you realize just how little you are. And your heart feels like it's going to skip a beat or stop, because there's this just supernatural awe that comes on you when you see what's in front of you. For some of you, it happens in an ocean. You get about two feet out into the water. It's barely up in the middle of your shin. Everyone around you seems to kind of fall away. And in that moment with the sound of that water, you look out and it goes on forever. And you can feel the power of the ocean and you can hear the noise and you can see and you realize just how big it is and how little you are. That's a view. And Paul says the only way that you and I are ever going to be people Cultivating a culture together of love that's able to overcome evil with good is if you and I are living with a view of God's mercy towards us in Jesus. The only way we ever become this kind of people who can bless and not persecute, who can bless when cursed, who can go down the road towards forgiveness as much as it depends on us to live at peace with each other, to not be caught up in this age of outrage and and anger and retaliation it's day in and day out to live in a view of God's continued mercy to us in Jesus. It's seeing Jesus and enjoying Jesus and our heart being increasingly captivated by the view, the panoramic, breathtaking view of God's mercy to us in his Son. I mean, if you were with us this weekend, that's all we talked about in the, by two-thirds of the conference in parenting, the foundation for all we talked about was living day in and day out with an increasing view of the mercy of God to us in Jesus, shaping our hearts and our understanding of who we were so that out of that we have something to give and shape those in our homes. It's the same thing. It's only with a view of the breathtaking realities of God's mercy. Even here, specifically, seeing Jesus being judged being punished, being crucified in your place for your sin, for the ways that you have hurt, the evil that you have been overcome by, the evil that you have spread to others. It's only in seeing the view of God's mercy towards you in him being mocked and being taunted and being crucified and not returning it. It's only in this view that you begin to have what you need to become an aggressive giver of grace to others, to be able to actually forgive, to no longer have to fight to justify yourself in the situation, to no longer have to fight for the reputation that you so desperately cling to in the situation. It's only when you live with a view of God's expansive mercy towards you in Jesus, today, and tomorrow, and the next day, that you and I are able to become the people that God is calling us to. I mean, just picture it for a moment in your head. Kids, you'll remember the story. Jesus is on the cross and He looks down at those who are persecuting Him. He looks down at those who put Him on the cross. He looks down at His executioners. What does He say? He actually prays. He seeks to bless those who are actively working to persecute Him. And He says, Father, what? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus didn't gloss over what was happening. This peace, this forgiveness, this, this reconciliation, it's not soft, it's not weak. Jesus said what they're doing is wrong. What's happening right now, it's wrong. He didn't look down at his executioners and say, guess what? You're going to get yours. The day's coming. No, he died on the cross in our place for. Our sin, the wrong that we have committed against others. Friends, as you and I live with a view, even in that moment, of Jesus responding to those crucifying him the way that he did, seeing him suffering in our place. It's only living with that breathtaking view that you and I are able to enter into a world steeped in anger and outrage and even have the inclination to go, how dare I seek to burn the earth around me? How dare I seek to scorch everyone who may disagree with anything that I may say, think, or do? Do you know... This is the last service. I can do this. When you and I... We come in here and we sing and we talk and we read and you get all the theology in your head and you can talk all the aspects of the gospel and you can use all the words and you can go around and, and we leave a place like this in a time like this. And the instinctive reaction of our heart and then the default working of our hands and our mouth and the rest of our life is to go and figure out how to retaliate against everything that seems to be wronged against us. When we talk about the gospel and the joy of the gospel and enjoying Jesus and then look for every opportunity that we have in our life to burn down anyone who disagrees with us in any any manner or means... All we're doing is demonstrating with that culture, with that life, that the view that we live in, the view that we have of God's breathtaking mercies to us, it's just a postcard view. It's not a view that we have by sitting on that spot, looking out over the expanse of his mercy to us and having it literally affect our soul. It's just a postcard. That looks nice. I know what it looks like. I can describe it. I can tell other people about it, but I've never actually been there. It's the goodwill hunting version of the gospel. Got all the answers, know all the details, can teach people all about it, but I've never actually experienced it for myself. Friends, God is is calling us to an expansive view of his mercies. God is calling us to live our lives in in view of Redemption's Hill, today, tomorrow, and the next day. That our hearts might be staggered by the magnitude of his mercies towards us in his son. As we see the genuineness of his love towards us, we see the genuineness of his love towards those around him on the earth. As we see the passion with which he abhorred anything that sought to destroy people's hearts and delight in the gospel. As we saw the affection that he had towards those who sought to hurt him, but he made them brothers and sisters. As we see the ways in which God honors us so deeply through the love he has for us in his son. See, it's this expansive view. It's it's being taken aback by seeing God's mercy in his son that makes us who God is calling us to be. Friends, this is God's invitation to us this morning. In just a couple of minutes, as we prepare to respond this morning, I'm just going to ask you to take the time in silence to ask God to give you a new view of his manifold wisdom, a new view of the breathtaking realities of his grace to you and his Son, I'm gonna give you a couple of minutes to ask him to renew that all in your heart, that for his glory and for your joy and the good of this church, he would work in us this countercultural reality of Romans chapter 12. And after we take a couple of minutes to just respond to God's word, for those who have repented of their sins and believed upon Jesus. We're going to have a tangible reminder of God's mercies. You want a view of God's mercies. We're going to be invited forward to receive communion, remembering his body broken, his blood shed, remembering the magnitude of his grace towards us in his son. We'll sing, we'll use our mouths to make much of him, and then we'll be sent out from here as his people. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to give you a couple of minutes to just reflect, to respond to the Lord, and then together we'll respond. Father, We thank you that this morning you've not left us to ourselves in this reality, but you have given us your very spirit that hovered over the face of the deep, that raised your son from the grave. Your very spirit is alive and at work in our hearts for your purposes, for our good and joy. And so we ask this morning that you would do that miracle in each heart here this morning the way that only you know how to do it and you would give us a renewed view of the breathtaking realities of your mercy towards us in jesus that our lives might be lived in view of that hill that our hearts might be shaped by the realities of those mercies that the culture you've eternally purposed amongst your people to be a reflection Of your love for a watching and angry world might be something that we can look back in the days and years to come and see you working out in this place and we ask that you would do that in Jesus' name for his glory and our joy amen you've been listening to a message by robert green given at redemption hill church in richmond virginia for more information on the church and to hear other messages please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.